This is the Amidon Planet Podcast, episode 18. I am your host, Joel Amidon, and we're calling this episode The Dream Keepers, and it's pretty simple. We're talking about the book, The Dream Keepers, Successful Teachers of African American Children by Gloria Ladson Billings. The fun part is, is we're talking with Gloria Ladson Billings about this book. Yes, first time getting to talk to an author about their book, and just so excited. So, just a little bit of background. One great thing about going to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for all my degrees was being surrounded by leaders in the field of education, but I wasn't aware of it really at the time. First time I kind of noticed something was the curriculum that that was being used in the middle school classroom that I was placed in. That curriculum was developed at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And then the next part is when I got admitted to my doctoral program and you start reading articles, you're reading research, and you're like, well, that was done here. That was done here, too. You know, that wasn't done here, but the person that did it got their degree here. And it's like you just start realizing, well, this is kind of a special place. And then it became more evident when I went to, like, research. My first research conference, I remember, was in New York City, and I'll talk about that at the end of the podcast, too. And it's a, the American Educational Research Association. I went into some sessions with professors. So from my university because sometimes you know you might have a class with them or you might see them in the hallway but you don't see what research they're doing unless you know you just dive into their cv but it's nice to hear them talk about it so i'd go into some sessions by wisconsin folk and those sessions were full people wanted to hear them talk and it's just like i'm kind of in a special place and it's not like most people, maybe when they did their doctoral program, they're they're trying to find a good doctoral program, and they might you know go do visits and stuff like that. I mean, we had tons of people that would come and do visits at Wisconsin because again, it was one of these big places, right? But I just remember it, for me, it was it's actually the university that's in town. It's the local one, and it's also the university that I grew up loving as a kid. You know, mostly through sports and through. My, you know, my dad was a big influence on that. He's like, you know, this is a really good institution. But again, you just didn't know it from an education perspective until I saw that. And then when you think about it, uh, just having these opportunities that come about, you know, and like that the fact that I was lucky enough to be in Wisconsin and lucky enough to be up there at a time when all these leaders in the field were there, it was, it was kind of amazing. I mean, the final straw, this is kind of a funny part was when I was being interviewed for a job, one of the interview questions, and I, this was not written down, this was an official interview question, obviously, was, tell me about Gloria. <laughs> so she's an amazing person. Um, she's so brilliant. She's so friendly. She's so nice. And I'm so grateful for her for being willing to come on this podcast and share some of the uh, background to this book and just also just share some of her wisdom with you all out there and just again she's she's been there for me a, a lot so not going to get in the way anymore but before we do just again the quick book disclaimer you're you're gonna want this book if you don't have this book on your bookshelf and you are an educator uh, of any sort I would get it I would get it and it's been around there for a while. There's two editions of it. There's the first edition that came out in 94. The second edition came out in 2009. Go get the book. Go get the book. Again, links to purchase the book will be found at amadonplanet.com forward slash episode 18. You can also go to your local bookstore. Show them some love. Like, 
Square Books here in Oxford, Mississippi. Without any further delay, here is my conversation with Gloria Ladson-Billings about her book, The Dreamkeepers. Gloria, thank you uh, so much uh, for being willing to uh, join the podcast and talk to us about, uh, about your book, uh, The Dreamkeepers. And so thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, and just a, a, a little bit of a background. Um, you know, you have been uh, someone that's guided my work for a long time. And I was just even thinking about it. Our our paths at uh, Wisconsin are fairly uh, started around the same. I mean, I, I came to Wisconsin at nineteen at nineteen ninety seven in the fall, and okay. you were there. When did you start at Wisconsin? Uh, fall of 91. Fall of 91. Okay. So long time. So, but, uh, and then thinking about my, my work as an undergrad and knowing how much you're, um, you've influenced the undergrad program at the university of Wisconsin. And then just thinking about, uh, my you know, master's and then into PhD and how those paths intersect and just knowing that, uh, without you, Glory Lance and Billings, I would not be where I am. So I'm just thankful for this conversation and thankful that you, uh, for all the work that you've done and, uh, just, uh, yeah, looking forward to having this discussion. Well, you're welcome. I'm not sure I can take all that credit, but <laughs> appreciate it. I'll give you, I'll give you as much as you can take. So, um, so, you know, th- thinking about your book, classic book, uh, The Dreamkeepers, Successful Teachers of African-American Children. And just, it's one of those books. And as I was uh, rereading it for this podcast, I just, uh, I mean, my notes are just all over it and just thinking about some of the things that I learned from it. But maybe if if you could give a little bit of background on how the book came to be. I I applied for a Spencer uh, National Academy of Education um, postdoc. And I applied with the idea that I was very concerned that almost all of the literature that I encountered in graduate school uh, while I was at Stanford was in what we call a deficit paradigm. It's like, what's wrong with these kids? Mm. Sometimes it would fan out to say, well, what's wrong with their parents? It might say, what's wrong with their community? Uh, And then by extension, what's wrong with this culture? And so there were all kinds of, you know, studies on the lack of uh, achievement motivation, the lack of um, sort of a um, support for education. All of these things are, quote, wrong with these children in these communities, in these families. And I just couldn't find anything that spoke to, well, what's actually right with the kids? Mm -hmm. What? Here are their examples of excellence, and I, you know, I'm actually starting with an N of two, you know, my yeah. brother and I, uh-huh. growing up in a household with parents who didn't have, uh, you know, prestigious formal educations, but who were pushing us, and then going to segregated schools in Philadelphia with teachers who were saying, you know what, you can do this. You, you are capable of doing all kinds of things. So I knew that such teachers existed. I knew that there were other people like me, but there was no literature of success. So that was the initial motivation. Um, I was in some ways thwarted when I started doing the work because as soon as you go into like a um, – 
a computer search mm-hmm. and put in words like uh, African-American success or African-American education. Actually, that's what I put in African-American education and black education. Mm-hmm. Within a couple clicks, you get a default to see culturally deprived wow. or see culturally disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. So the actual literature is organized in such a way as to say these people are not capable of excellence. So that was the motivation for the proposal. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever thought about doing a book. I just wanted to do a study that looked at this. Yeah. Uh, I think what happened was um, the Chronicle of Higher Ed publishes the, at that time, they would publish the, the postdoc winners and the name of their projects. And I think the folks at what was then Josie Bass Publishers is now under the John Wiley imprint. Um, one of the editors saw it and saw, saw that I was in the Bay Area and thought, well, I'd love to talk with her about it. Mm-hmm. So we arranged a lunch meeting. And in the midst of our meeting, she said, well, have you ever thought about writing a book about this? And I said, no, I just, <laughs> I just need to do this study. And she says, well, I think we could actually be a pretty intriguing book. Um, and that's kind of what put it in my head to expand it and think of it beyond just a study. Wow. Thankful you did. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, and then, I mean, I, even too, to thinking like how you went about it. And I remember your, you know, when we were in class, you described how you, you know, structured the study and even just how you found the teachers. And I don't know if you'd be willing to share a little bit about that strategy yeah, of going but, to the schools, but then also going to, into the community. Sure. The, the, I knew based on what I'd found in the literature search that if I did this study the way every other study was done, I was going to come up with the same results. Mm-hmm. So I, um, the, the nice thing about the Spencer uh, postdoc program, it puts you in contact with other people who are doing interesting work. And so I was actually in contact with Michelle Foster, who was doing a study strictly on black teachers. Now, I wasn't studying just black teachers. I was studying teachers who were successful with black students. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, I ended up with both black and white teachers in my study. But uh, when I talked to Michelle about how she had come up with, you know, how did you decide which teachers to, to focus on? She said, well, I use this process of I'm calling community nomination. And so I said, well, tell me about that. She said, well, I just kind of go out into the community and ask people, you know, who are the good teachers? Um, so I thought, well, wow, of course you're going to get something different than um, just looking at test scores or things like that. So I did indeed, uh, I actually went to local churches and talked with uh, parents about who they thought were good teachers. Now, I think the the Stanford training in me required me to do something in addition to that. And so <laughs> instead of just using those nominations, I did talk with school-based people. So I talked with principals and I talked with other teachers. And so I decided that if a name showed up on both lists, then I was pretty safe that, that they'd be a good candidate. So I probably had about 20 people from the community. I probably had another 20, 22 people from the principals and other teachers. But there were nine names in common. And so those nine were the people that I selected. And eight of the nine agreed to work with me. That's, I mean, 
what what I loved about that when hearing that story back when we were in class and just what you related to it now, it's like in thinking about someone that might be wanting to do something similar, uh, you know, it's doing a study or whatnot, that it doesn't involve like creating uh, a survey monkey or, you know, like a Qualtrics or like something that's very formal, but like going and having these conversations, actually getting into the community and talking to people, like it doesn't have to be this super complicated thing, but, but the, the list of names that you got, I mean, the fact that they were in both of those circles, it just, I don't know, it just, it made it really clear that, okay, these, this is a special set, right. Of of teachers you get to deal with. And and I'm not suggesting that the other 11 or so that the community named weren't good or the other 11 to 13 that the principals and teachers name weren't good. I was just trying to do something to kind of check the validity to say, yeah. okay, at least we have, you know, we have two sources. Yeah, exactly. Is a good teacher. Awesome. So given that background and thinking about all the, um, so then you, you go in and you do what a year of observing? Is that no, right? No, I'm, I'm actually there three years. Gosh, uh, wow. <laughs> that's why when students will come to me and say, "Oh, I want to do this study for my dissertation. I want to replicate it," I say, "Do you have three years to collect data?" Right. And they go, "Oh no." I said, well, "Then you don't want to do this study." That's right. Um, because one one of the things I do know about ethnography is it is so labor intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to stay in the field long enough to see patterns. Um, so the first year involved the interviews with the teachers. The end of the first year, second year, and beginning of the third year involved um, the observation and uh, videotaping. You probably needed that that long amount of time so that it you fade a little bit for, Oh, she's here to, for the study versus like, no, she, she's always, she's always in our classroom. Is that right? Right. Know? And, um, you know, when you've got eight different classrooms, you, you've got to log a lot of time, you, you, you know, oh, to be able yeah. to say, anything. yeah, that's, uh, you know, started to talk to some of my students about, you know, there's, you know, doing their studies for their dissertation. And it's like, you know, they want to do this and this study and they want to do this many observations with this many teachers. And it's just like the mathematician in me is like, okay, well, that's this many interviews. It's this much transcribed. That's, you know, like you multiply it out and they're like, oh, I didn't think about that. Like, yeah, there's a lot of math (laughs) behind this. Just the transcription. Um, I, I actually transcript transcribed the, um, interviews myself. And I did it because I was working in a relatively small community. Mm-hmm. People knew people. And I just felt that the biggest thing I had to maintain with folks was um, trust. Oh, yeah. How do, you know, how do I help them see that um, what I'm saying is not going to get back to their, their principals, their supervisors, to folks in the community they don't want to hear so I had did all the transcription, and the truth of the matter is I don't know how to transcribe. So it was excruciating. <laughs> yeah. 
didn't have a, the, I remember there was like a pedal you could get. When yeah, I was, there's a machine. I, I got one of those, I think, when I got to Wisconsin and still hated it. And oh, then yeah. I started paying people to transcribe. I, I was working in bigger communities. And so I was like, you know what? Some people can do this. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I can't imagine. That's a lot. That's a lot of trans. But I mean, <laughs> hey, that's the first start of analysis, right? Is uh, writing, typing up those interviews. Right. Oh, my goodness. Um, so, Okay, so we got kind of the background of the book, and so I, I presented you with some of the categories that we use, and like, but like I said in the email that I sent, you're the uh, kind of the guinea pig of you're the first actual author of a book that I've had a chance to to talk to. So it was kind of interesting thinking about these questions, but I'm just curious, and you know, in the hindsight of thinking that this was since 1994 that it was first published, and then like you in uh, 2009, I believe you said the. The second edition came out, so still some decent amount of time from both of those uh, editions. Is what are some things that maybe you've thought about or you've learned just in in rethinking about the book, or something you've learned since uh, since writing the book? Um, and I'm actually talking a lot about this now, and that is because I focused on elementary classrooms, and I you know I will freely admit I chose elementary classrooms for the convenience. Uh, if I had to look at one teacher through five classrooms, I would have probably gone nuts, you know, by <laughs> yeah. myself. Uh-huh. Um, so the fact that I had self-contained classrooms made the research uh, environment a lot easier for me. Mm-hmm. But the trade-off that I have now discovered is the sense of culture that I was using did not include um, youth culture. Mm. If I've been with secondary students, which is actually my background, I know that secondary students are producers of youth culture. And I would argue what I now know about youth culture is that a culturally relevant teacher is going to incorporate youth culture as well as the the students' uh, culture of origin. So the work that we're doing with um, Chris Emden and... um, Ian Levy and those folks in New York around hip hop ed is really about how do you bring youth culture? And I'm not suggesting that younger kids don't participate in it, but they are mostly consumers of youth culture. They're not producers. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm seeing now among secondary teachers is that really, really effective secondary teachers have figured out how to engage in students' youth youth culture to be successful with them. That's uh, wow. So, I mean, I remember when Emden, uh, came to, uh, the university of Wisconsin when I was a, a doc student there. Um, and he came in and shared some knowledge, gave a talk and then shared some knowledge with our math ed seminar. And, and just, he was making connections in between, um, uh, hip hop and, um, science education and I remember mm-hmm. back and forth and like the, and some of the writings that he's have that's on my shelf over here, like talking about like the translation of like argumentation in science, uh, between I'm going to mix up the scientists like, uh, Galileo and, mm-hmm. uh, about how the universe is organized the letters back and forth. And, right. and then even, and then comparing that to a, rap uh kind of the battles between nas and um oh i'm gonna forget 
uh, Tupac. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And thinking like back and forth, like they're taking what they're taking both of these, both of these two groups or both these two players are taking what the other is offering, making a spin on it and, and uh, putting it right back on them. And so like in doing the comparison there and then like comparing what, how, uh, you know, uh, a cipher is like how scientists, uh, build on the research of each other and just seeing how, like just taking this way of being a scientist and how can we, you know, basically take the way of being, uh, well, like you said, a producer of culture and like saying, Hey, these two can be the same thing. You can use the way that you are participating in society as a way of participating in a science classroom. And now the science classroom gets better because there's more ways of participating in it. I think the whole notion of the cipher is that people argue their points. Mm -hmm. And it's no different than watching a, a cipher among hip hop artists than looking at the back and forth that may happen in journals. Mm -hmm. uh, and helping students understand you're actually using a skill we hope you will, will develop even further. Um, I think what's interesting about this is that Carol Lee began talking about this years ago uh, in her work on cultural modeling. Mm -hmm. um, she, she made a statement, I think she'd given a talk at Wisconsin that I, that I thought was really interesting. She says, most English teachers can't tell you how they learned what it is that they now do with text. Mm -hmm. They can't tell you how they were able to determine plot and theme, unreliable narrator, all the stuff we say we want somebody to be able to do with the text. Most English teachers can't tell you how they did it, uh, how they learned it. Um, so what she does with the cultural modeling is show that kids actually can do all of these things already but they can only, they do it in genres with which they are familiar. Mm -hmm. So she started with hip hop and she would take the hip hop lyrics and she would say, well, what does this mean? And the kids would talk about the imagery and the plot. And she was like, I don't know any of this stuff. They know it. They just don't know it in the context of sort of a European classic literature. They don't know it in the context of Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. They don't know it in the context of Hawthorne. So her argument is that you have to show them they already know how to do it and then scaffold them. So she starts with uh, some pretty basic texts and moves them over. And Toni Morrison's beloved. Uh, but it, it, it's like a three-year process because she, she teaches the same section of kids in Chicago for three years mm. from sophomore to senior year. And just helps them see those connections. Right, right. So you're saying Carol Lee kind of started the cipher here of the building on these I, ideas, I, right? I mean, I think that's some of the earliest stuff I've seen that, that her cultural modeling stuff really does use the students' culture as a way to demonstrate that they already have a lot of the knowledge that we claim we want them to get. So I guess that, that ties in something that you know, I wanted to, to bring up with this kind of the learnings idea. And I was just curious about in hearing what your comments would be. And you've already said some of them about the, cause I've heard you talk and I've seen some of your other books of, you know, the dream keepers and then the crossing, uh, over to Canaan. And then even here, I was there in San Francisco when it was you, 
Django and Django Paris and Sammy Aleem and talked about mm-hmm. culturally sustaining pedagogy. And I know you've had a, a project with them with uh, writing the, I think the edited book, right? Uh, culturally sustaining pedagogies, I believe. Um, yeah. Yes. And, and so like the, the fact that these ideas about, you know, what you've originally found in your study, it, it feels like there's this evolution going on or a refinement, or I don't know how you would put it of, these ideas about what does it mean to do this teaching well? Right. And I, you know, I I think probably said in the San Francisco panel that, you know, no theoretician worth their salt is uh, unwilling to learn and get better. So uh, there are those who have contacted me and been upset because people are, doing, quote, another thing with the theory. And I said, well, that, that's good. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's not a bad thing. Right. I mean, if, 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 if getting better is a bad thing, then we're all riding in Model T. <laughs> you know, that's right. Every, every iteration gives us an opportunity to improve. Yeah, and, and thinking about, I mean, it, that just, because I, I remember going to San Francisco and being like, I, you know, you get the uh, American... Uh, or the AERA uh, book or what it was like a phone book of all the different mm-hmm. things to see. And I remember that one popped up and thinking, all right, I need to go, I need to go see this. And it was just like one of those moments where it's like, it did open my, cause like, you know, like you said, there's some folks that they've got their copy of dream keepers. It's in a prominent place on their bookshelf and maybe they're still sitting there on the ideas and now thinking like, how can I, yeah, that's a, it's a great place to be, but then how can I continue to evolve in my thinking about what does it mean to teach my students well. Right, right. And actually, funny story about that. So on a, on the way back from, uh, I don't know if I ever shared this with you, on the way back from uh, uh, from AERA in San Francisco, I was sitting next to someone, and they had their copy of Dreamkeepers out, and they right. were paging through it, and like, okay, and like they must be coming back from the conference, you know, uh, gonna you know talk to them and I'll, i'm gonna show off a little bit that i'm uh-huh. that i know glory lats and billings and uh <laughs> but either before or after that i can't quite remember the sequence i accidentally like i spilled my dr pepper that they were handing across the aisle onto this person as well so oh, no. yeah it was bad it was really bad so anyway um so i you know maybe helping them clean up and then they say hey i see this book maybe just trying to make you know make small talk and help help them forget that i just spilled a sticky substance all over them um i said hey i see you're reading that book and like she's like yeah i like to read it every now and then because there's just so much good stuff and they're like yeah yeah it's really good and i'm actually from wisconsin actually i'm in class with with uh her right now and she's like oh really so she was she was my advisor and i'm like oh really and it was it happened to be pauline lipman oh wow yeah and then and then i was like oh my goodness because like the year before i had gone down to chicago and done some things with rico gustine i'm like mm-hmm. hey i'd stayed in your house actually last <laughs> year i guess we never we never met face to face so it was like such a small world uh and then you know the embarrassing part about spilling my drink all over him thinking i was hot stuff for evan <laughs> knowing you as well so but yeah pauline Lipman has done some great work uh, yeah. as well um but anyway sorry a little tangent there but um so one thing that uh, another thing that I was thinking about, and I wonder if you had a comment on, is in, in thinking. So one of the the like almost stark contrasts that I remember from the book, or that I have you know highlighted in the book, is like 
the idea of Rossi, the the math teacher uh, right. from in the book, and then the contrast between her and uh, I believe the name they gave the to the student teacher was Walsh, right? The way that Alex Walsh, the student teacher who's interacting with students, kind of has a uh, a deficit perspective, not a lot of patience with them versus mm-hmm. Rossi. And you have these two pictures almost side by side of this, you know, dynamic teacher who is, you know, expecting the best out of her students, who's, you know, providing them opportunities to go above the curriculum that they're currently getting, like showing them algebra and, right. and, and exposing them all this to, um, you know, this, you know, student teacher who's living with these, uh, kind of perceptions of the student that where they, that they can't do things right. That they're, they're not capable of certain things and thinking about like, you know, here's the picture of what, you know, maybe I was at, right. Maybe I was Alex Walsh and thinking about how do I get to this place like Rossi or even now in my current position, how, what is the path, right? What is the path from Walsh to Rossi? How do you help develop uh, teachers like that? Cause that's, that's like the question I'm, currently asking myself but like what i don't know what 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 have you uh, thought about with that sort of uh that path of development so probably um the thing that i've learned because one of the things i haven't said is the reason i did the dream keepers was not just to tell people oh there are great teachers out here who can do good things with 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 black kids i i I knew that Mm -hmm. you know what i really my my a larger purpose was how do we change the, the preparation of teachers so that it doesn't take teachers forever <laughs> right. to, to get to this place to recognize, you know what, these kids are as bright as any other group of kids. They're capable as any other group of kids. So um, the, the, the motivation for the project all along has been improving teacher education because mm-hmm. um, what I when I went back and to analyze the data and try to figure out well what is it that these teachers have in common because they're quite different uh-huh. uh, they're different age-wise they're different they're you know racially they're different in their own preparation I got everything from people who go to you know big large state schools the people who go to the small private school. I mean, everything, people who go to HBCUs, people who go. So none of that's lining up. Uh, The one thing that you might say they have in common is experience. So the least amount of experience in the group is 12 years at the time, but I go 12 to 40 years of experience. So so I'm sitting there going, wow, you mean to tell me it's going to take people a decade or more to get good enough to do this? Um, and so I'll go back in and look at the data. One of the things I discover, it's not as obvious, but once, once you go back and and look at the, the, the interview transcripts, when they discuss their own backgrounds, they've all had what I would call some transformational moment. They've had some moment in their life where things were seeming to go okay this is, oh, you know, this is just how life is. And then all of a sudden they go, what? <laughs> you know, where, where they have something that transforms them. Some of them have it early, like, um, Mrs. Oh, what do I call my Devereaux? I think I call her. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
who, if, if I have the names right, this is the one that is from Mississippi, actually. I think uh, that's Devereaux. I, I think so. I, I have, uh, but her her real concern, uh, what what kind of opens her eyes for her is this incredible poverty that she sees among most people in in Mississippi, mm-hmm. but the people who seem to be um, doing good things in the community seem to be rising above circumstances are teachers. And uh, so it, that's for her as kind of a light bulb moment. Oh, okay. One of the ways that I can help change things in the community is be a teacher. So hers is early on as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that another example of transformation is that one of my teachers, um, gets very involved in the Black Panther Party. Um, mm-hmm. And it's that that changes and shapes her, her viewpoint. Um, I would also say that, you know, Miss Winston, who had the, had the 40 years of experience at the time of the study, is someone who comes, she is white, she is um, from the Midwest, she starts teaching in a all-white one-room schoolhouse, rural school. I mean, her her experiences couldn't be more different. Yeah, yeah. But she joins the Peace Corps, and going to uh, West Africa, it's like it's like the scales fall off her her eyes. It's like, oh my goodness, I didn't I didn't know this was happening in the world. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes for for me as a teacher educator. What kind of transformative experiences can we provide? Because, you know, being 19 is being 19. We, we, we can't, you know, we can't change people's life experiences. It's kind of why students of color end up being frustrated in a lot of the teacher ed programs because they've had some transformative experience. They've been stopped by the police or they've had a friend wrongly accused. Whereas many of my white students have had a fairly uh, idyllic life. I mean, they, they had supportive parents, they've had enough resources. Uh, to them, the world is fair. So one of the things that we tried to do when we created the Teach for Diversity program about which the Crossing Over to Canaan it describes was to at least place students in an environment outside of school, actually community environment where they could see kids flourishing and then place them in, you know, then have them go to schools and see that actually something, um, something very different is happening from the schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then ask the question, why are schools different than kids' experiences outside of school? The other thing we were able to do with the Teach for Diversity, since it was a post-baccalaureate program, is we could select for people mm-hmm. who actually could define a transformative experience. Is was some of that um, some of that program the like did that make its way into the undergrad program? I just remember we had some like tutoring experiences there was like experiences that were outside of like a field experience like directly interacting with a teacher they were in some um not directly uh 
like yeah, it was like tutoring programs outside of a school or something like that where yeah, we each I got think, placed in I some. I think we tried to do that in the first semester of the teacher ed program uh, in the intro to education course. The problem with that versus what we did with Teach with Diversity is that's a whole different set of kids. Mm-hmm. What we did with Teach with Diversity is play, we, we limited the schools we would use as our school sites and which meant we limited the communities. We were only working in three communities. Right. So we put kids in, we put our students in community centers where they would interact with kids who would show up at the schools they worked at. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. That's like, um, you giving, you know, giving, uh, our pre-service teachers here, like some experiences where, yeah, you're, you're getting to see kids being successful in some places that, or getting them to see the kids being successful in places other than inside classrooms and like how beneficial that can be to like just seeing them beyond just this narrow sort of window of, of, of experiences that they get from just their lessons or just their classroom. Exactly. Yeah. yeah that's a great, I mean, I have that book too. Lots of, lots of uh, notes and tabs in that one as well. Crossing to Canaan. That's a great one as well. Um, I know our time is limited, so I, I wanted to maybe even just uh, uh, go look at our categories here and think of like, what is something, um, what is something you want teachers to gain from this book that maybe we haven't said so far? Well, I don't know if it's just from the book, but from an approach to teaching. Um, yeah, exactly. I did a. Uh, a presentation over the Martin Luther King holiday uh, for the Madison area, the Urban League of Greater Madison. And, you know, you've been in Wisconsin over MLK Day, so you know we do a lot of stuff. There's mm-hmm. a state celebration. There's a city-county celebration. I mean, there, there's a lot of things. But this particular breakfast is for, you know, kids who have been identified by their teachers as, you know, being outstanding. So we have everything. We, we do middle school, the high school kids. We do about 300 uh, citations for kids as well as give out some scholarships. And one of the things I shared, because a lot of teachers will come to support kids, is that that particular celebration is the only celebration in which, if you look at the program, Martin Luther King is on the program as a kid. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's in his cap and gown graduating <laughs> from high school. Every other depiction we have of him is as a grown adult. Mm -hmm. And that's who we have frozen in our minds, this adult who did these marvelous things, won a Nobel Prize, you know, great speech maker. And what I say, the reason that I like the picture of the kid is because I will bet you dollars to donuts, his teachers didn't know he was going to be anything. (laughs) And the point, I think, that I want teachers to come away with is just like his teachers didn't know what he was going to become. You don't know who's in the classroom. You have no way of knowing. And so if you are already assigning success and failure, you're doing the kids a a, a disservice. They have to become these people. And if you treated them all as if they were going to become successful, the likelihood that more of them would be is much higher if you than if you've already decided from the beginning, well, you're not going to be, you're not going to become anything. And I think that was something that I learned from those teachers is that 
you just never know who's in the classroom. That's good, right? That's pretty good. She always gets you thinking. And especially I like that last part where she talks about MLK being in his, you know, graduation robe and thinking about when we're teaching those we're teaching, what are we thinking that they can become, right? Are we putting limitations on that? And that that got me thinking. That got me th- I mean, thinking about the teachers that I get a chance to interact with or getting to think, how can I help my teachers imagine the possibilities for their students? It's good. It's good. And it, it gets me thinking about some of the other revelations that I've had from Gloria. And like the list is long, but I got one that I really want to share. And it happens to be my first interaction with her as a doc student. Actually, I didn't actually interact with her. I just went and saw her speak. You know, it's what was kind of weird was a lot of people were on sabbatical when I first started my um, doctoral program, and she was one of them. But she was still doing uh, this conference, the American Educational Research Association conference in New York. And so I had a chance to go and I went, (laughs) I was, you know, I had a family. So I went on the cheap, just got to New York for a few days, was able to sleep on a cot in some other grad students room, um, you know, just ate bagels off the street. It was, it was pretty, uh, pretty meager uh, uh, start to my doctoral program. But anyway, I had a chance to go see Gloria and she was on a panel where they were talking about culturally relevant teaching, right? So different leaders in the field that have talked about this thing about being culturally relevant in how you teach. And so she was one. And I remember her being just fired up, for one. But two, she was talking about schools or schools of education that have professed to say, yeah, yeah, we do culturally relevant teaching. We're all about that. And it was like, you know, those folks that are like mission statements sort of folks like, yeah, we do social justice. We do cultural relevant teaching. We're all about that. But she was like, she wanted to investigate those schools and see what are you actually doing? Have you actually internalized the ideas of cultural relevant pedagogy and put them into your program? Or did you say, hey, these are some good words. I'm going to put these words in there. And that will say, hey, we're, we're doing this. Look, they're there. The, the words are there. Just go away. We're, we're fine. We got the words. And she was fired up talking about it. And I just remember being like, almost like put on notice. Like, hey, your words and your actions need to line up, right? And, and so and going back to Wisconsin, it wasn't all, you know, perfect. Like it was kind of ivory towerish, where there were a lot of people like using a lot of words, a lot of good words, but where were the actions behind it? And Gloria's one where her actions were definitely behind what she was doing. But, you know, did I want to do things that actually had actions that aligned with it? So thinking about the podcast we did a couple of weeks ago, that was like basically the lit review for my um my dissertation was on teaching mathematics as agape. So there's a lot of words, a lot of good words, a lot of good sounding words. And people are like, ooh, those, those are good words. But what were the actions behind it? And so that was the whole point of my study was to go into a classroom and figure out what are the actions? What are the practices of teaching math as agape? What does teaching mathematics as agape look like? That's, that was actually my research question that guided that whole study. 
And that's kind of what I've been doing now is thinking about how can I put in alignment my words and my actions. And that's kind of what I do with my students now. Hey, have a pocket-sized philosophy statement. Think about what are things that you do that are in alignment with that. And then do you actually believe those words? And if not, adjust your words. Then that can adjust your actions. It's a back-and-forth play. And I, you know, I have to think, like, maybe it started with that talk from Gloria because that was when I was just, I just had this vivid memory of that talk and how it impacted me. Just that, man, when I, when I say I want to do something and I better follow up with it. And so that's all. That's all I wanted to share on top of what she did. I mean, just so grateful that she was willing to come on and share some of her expertise with us all. So that's it for this episode of the Amazon Planet podcast. If you're looking for show notes, you can find them at amazonplanet.com forward slash episode 18. And if you're looking for ways to support, which we really appreciate, you can subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you found it. You can like the Amazon Planet Facebook page. You can sign up for the Amazon Planet email list. Again, we keep sending out a little bit of coffee if you want to sign up. There's a little incentive there, but you also get notified about other stuff that's going on. Like... I just started a new podcast through the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators called Teaching Math Teaching. And we'll put a little post in uh, email if we have not already. Also, you can find me on the interwebs via Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. A little interactions there. Those are supporting the podcast because we find content that way. We get suggestions. And actually, suggestion leads to our next episode that's coming up in the very near future. Finally... If you want to support the podcast, you can go to the Amazon Planet store and you make a purchase and those purchases support the production costs of the Amazon Planet podcast. And we really appreciate anything you do there. There's shirts, hoodies, there's even coffee cups. Again, all the proceeds from those go to support the production costs of the Amazon Planet podcast. So thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you to Gloria for taking the time to share her expertise on this episode. Thank you to Matt Mifflin for his music for this episode. And finally, thank you, thank you to all of you out there who are seeking to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you have been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace. <laughs>